and welcome to episode four of Stan Ontology, a K-pop track breakdown podcast. I'm Michael, pronouns they them. You can find me on Twitter at Regression. I'm Claudia, pronouns she, her. You can find me on Twitter at Claudia W.Y. Low. And we're here to talk about the hottest of hot messes, mm. the wonderful, the, the wacky, the extraordinary Come Back Home by 21. our podcasting publishing debut just in time for the hottest messiest hot mess hottest messiest hot mess yeah the first recording after launching thank you for all of those people who have nabbed the podcasts on its first few days in existence thank you very much and yeah keep this keep this poppy going yeah. i don't know why i said poppy <laughs> it's that sounds vaguely concerning <laughs> All right, let's. We're, we're keeping this 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 project going as long as we can. I mean, I'm enjoying it. So. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, let's. I think we need to start with the story before we even say who Twenty One is. Mm-hmm. How did you encounter this track? Oh, okay. So story time. We were pitching ideas for the tracks we wanted to cover um, for this uh, podcast, and Michael. Well, we, we we decided we definitely needed to pick some form of a hot mess song. And I should clarify here, like, we mean hot mess affectionately. It's, in fact, it, not just affectionately. Affection might imply sort of like, ah, uh, it's endearing, but a bit crap. No, hot mess is like an actively good thing for a song to be. Yeah, I've, I always like to say that the emotion I'm looking for the first time I listen to a K-pop song is, I don't know what the hell I just listened to, but I want to do that again. Yes. To be being utterly stupefied, but completely intrigued and entranced. That's the goal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so like that's the emotion I associate with a hot mess. Anyway, so we were trying to pick a, a good hot mess song. And Michael goes, have you heard this? And I said, uh, I don't think so. And I listened to it. And we were on a voice call at the time, and you can verify there was a... I screamed a lot. Mm-hmm. Lots of screaming. Yeah, yeah. Not just in like, oh my god, this is great. That was not my initial reaction. It was like, how dare they do this? <laughs> how very dare they? <sighs> yeah. They went places. They really, really went places. They really did. And I think with that out of the way, tell me, who are to anyone? What, uh, firstly, spelled the number two, capital N, capital E, the number one, like the digit one. All right. Not, not, not like 21, although it does sound the same. And I think yeah, that's the point. How you pronounce it. Yes. So, um, so am I right in saying this is the first group we're covering that isn't on SM Entertainment? I think it is. It, it is. So finally, we're hitting a group that are uh, signed to a label that is one of the big three labels, in inverted commas, of historic K-pop that is not SM, 
we're talking about YG Entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a four-person girl group. Members are Park Bom. Um, the last I saw of her was as one of the contestants on Queendom, a sort of new version of a survival show or music contest show in Korea, pitching girl groups and female acts together, which was cool and exciting. But um, she was, she's quite clearly in her like latter day, no longer a star, like trying to find stuff to show out in the twilight of her career. Mm-hmm. Minzy, I straight up do not know what she's up to. Minzy was the youngest of the group. Uh, after leaving, which skipping to the end of it, she uh, signed on to a smaller company that didn't seem to promote her. But recently, as of I think like a month before we recorded this, um, so in sort of early-ish 2020, she announced that she was departing from that uh, uh, label as well. I'm literally yeah. seeing news updates from two days ago to say... Absolutely, yeah, yeah. ...that she's, like, announcing a second solo comeback. CL, who was the sort of, like... I don't think it's uncharitable to say, like, the straight-up star of the group. Yeah. Who um took a lot of the limelight, had a really strong solo career under YG, but then had a sort of, like, weird, slightly uncomfortable split, which included a lot of her work disappearing from their back catalogues, which was a bit uncomfortable. But I think now is also like striking out on a solo career outside of YG. Mm-hmm. And Dara? Uh, she renewed her contract with YG at the end of 2016. So she may well still be with them. And she's... Seems to be done... doing film, film and TV stuff. Yeah, a lot of film and TV stuff, which is like a fairly common route for idols, yeah. I feel, who don't want to continue with music. Yeah. Um, so yeah, YG as a label then. Um, back in the day, I guess you described them as a hip-hop label? Yeah, I think so. Um, they started off life as like an underground hip-hop label. Um run by one of the members of Seo Taiji and Boys, who we mentioned briefly on last um, last episode. Right. Uh, which, as, as like the foundational act of K-pop. Yeah, so um, one of the backing dancers slash rappers turned into the chief executive of YG Entertainment. And then like slowly has transformed itself from, it's still very much a hip-hop focused pop label, but is very much towards... Um, I mean, like a lot of their uh, more famous groups like To Anyone, like Big Bang, and uh, more recently I would say Blackpink, uh, Winner, Icon, etc. have much more of like a hip-hop... It's definitely a hip-hop flavor on on rap. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And with a more kind of, we'll say like a more aggressive or like a darker uh, concept or styling to a lot of the groups compared to contemporaries. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and they feel like they had like a reputation or they tried to build this reputation of being the most like authentic of like allowing their uh, idols to kind of, like if we contrast them against the, the, the stereotype or the kind of common view of SM idols, which are like super polished, super manufactured at the expense of individuality or at the expense of being able to like express their opinions and views. YG is, YG Entertainment is supposedly like a little freer with that. It is, however, still a, a, a K-pop idol company. So 
Yeah, and a cable bridle company that made it successfully enough to be considered, at least up until very recently, as one of the big three alongside SM and JYP. Yeah. So. so yeah, 21's trajectory is a group itself. Um, massively, massively successful in the first half of the 2010s. I'd say yep. is like their, that's their stomping ground. Yeah, um, they, they debuted in 09, yeah. um, but uh-huh. officially disbanded at uh, 2016. And um, had one of the first truly massive crossover hits in terms of western recognition of k-pop which was i'm the best oh my god which is a huge um like explosive edm track that i think is pretty fucking wonderful but um i think is probably most famous for being used in a microsoft laptop advert i think that's what <laughs> happened to it oh dear uh, but but like it is genuinely great and is very well worth like going out and listening to although it is not the focus of today's uh, yeah. yeah because i am the best was 2011 um huge smash hit um, put them right at the top of the industry. And then for the next few years, they were out there trying to simultaneously be the front, the, the front runners of the industry, as well as like maintain their position as, as all the things we've described YG to be um, experimental, slightly more hip hop focused, darker in image and um, more like raw and like exciting which means a need to constantly reinvent yourself and push the boundary and push the envelope of what's acceptable and normal to hear in pop music. Mm-hmm. We talked last week about Lucifer and the notion of a hot mess. I think now is the, the time to actually try and figure out what we mean by hot mess. Yeah. Um, and like, we may end up just saying the same thing with different words, but I think the, the, kind of free word association we came up with was like well firstly it's it's very ambitious yeah um and it's you called it arch would you want to elaborate a little yeah. bit on that so well i think arch is a word i used to describe specifically the way one of the elements of this track that is so surprising to its recombination i think like if i was to try and circle it on something that's common to all the hot messes that we're talking about mm-hmm. it's stuff that breaks established forms and genres by usually recombining other genres in unexpected ways, usually with Mm. juxtaposition as opposed to integration. Um, Yeah. I think this is a, this is a central thing we might come back to, but the idea of capable being incredibly comfortable with juxtaposition as in clashes and abrupt changes as opposed to, attempting to soar off the edges of things in order to integrate them more seamlessly. And I think mm-hmm. the tolerance for, if, if you want to like an apocryphal way of describing it, you just, you look straight up back at Nanareo, which is like a, an unholy marriage of, um, um, boom, bap, hip hop and, um, metal guitars. Yeah. 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 And you hear immediately a blueprint for juxtaposition 
placing things side by side to each other for effect as, a, as opposed to trying to integrate them that is a, it's a template for the stuff that comes later um I think Lucifer might be not an exception, but like notable in that it pretty successfully does all the integration that it's trying to do. Come Back Home does not. No. Come Back Home just slams things next to each other and expects you to hold on for the ride. Oh, there's a lot of whiplash that we're going to go through. Yeah. In the, in the course of discussing this, as I did in the course of listening to it. Yeah, so the, the scream moments, the, the whiplash between tonalities, the whiplash between timbres and textures... The suddenness and the the uh, like straight up strangeness of the the things being put together and the way and the speed with which they're put together. Right, with 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 very little uh, build up or support at times, I would say. Yeah, which can be a detriment. But if you are like me and you're here for the ro- thrilling roller coaster ride that is any given K-pop single, that's what I like about it. It's what I'm here for. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the defining features. And I think like this is when you start thinking about the real significant things that separate the experience of listening to Western and Korean pop music, it's that both because of the tradition that it comes out of and the way that Korean pop music has like thought about how to be successful and intriguing and interesting, Korean pop music is consistently surprising. K-pop is going to blow your socks off once in a while and mm-hmm. maybe maybe twice in a while or maybe three times in the same track. Yeah. And it's just a very fun thing to listen mm-hmm. to. So this song is a hot mess. This song is possibly the hot mess. This song is one of the like things to point to for like the unholy, sudden, shocking integration of completely disparate, weird things. But as we dive deeper and deeper into that, I want I mean I, I want it want to keep in the back of our minds that it was a wildly successful hot mess. Like we've already said to anyone was like a huge smash hit and this single was no uh was no exception to that. It hit what number four in the world digital singles chart, topped all of the chart, uh, all the digital sales charts domestically. Um, the album that this was the single for, Crush, their second uh, full-length album, set a uh, set another sales record, set another Billboard uh, world digital uh, record, I believe. So clearly, they're like doing the sort exactly the sorts of sales things that you'd hope and expect a group at the top of the top of the industry to be doing. Right. And by d- at the top of the industry, we do mean to anyone sold like 66 and a half million records. They're like one of the single most successful girl groups in history. Yeah. It's uncontested. Yeah. We're talking like there are few that come to their level. Maybe it's twice Blackpink, them and Girls' Generation mm-hmm. at that very top level. And not many others come close. And this is this is the, the world you're dealing with where single... Single K-pop acts can like singularly define how eras sound, which is a really, really exciting and strange world to be in. But this is where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth, since we talked about Seotaiji so extensively, it's worth noting there is a Seotaiji track called Come Back Home, which um, in the behind the scenes video for this, for the MV for Come Back Home, the members of 21 talk about how for the CEO of um, the then CEO of YG Entertainment, Young Hyun Suk, who was one of the original three members of Seo Taiji and Boys. It was a, like a nostalgic and emotional experience for him, mm-hmm. given he was a big part of a, of a single 
that was one of the like we call Nanareo, I know one of the foundational documents of um right. Korean pop music. One of Seotaiji's other great singles is Come Back Home. Yeah. yeah. Um all they really share is a central, like what, a common lyrical sense about yearning for someone to return. But Right, yearning for a loved one to come back home. And they do it in entirely different ways. So it's sort of where we gotta leave the Seotaiji stuff behind and just think about what the hell is this track doing? What the hell is this track doing? <laughs> and it's, it's, I feel like it's, you can't talk about what the hell is this track doing without looking at the MV. Yeah, we got to start with the music video. So in kind of a, yeah, so in sort of a departure, we're, we're actually going to start by talking about this music video, which strap in everybody. It's, it's great. So yeah, again, there are, this is one where, as, as with always, there are many different formats you could be listening to this. Um, you could be listening to the track on Spotify or iTunes or something. You could be um, trying to find uh, like live versions. We recommend you go watch the music video. First up, because on the album, on the album Crush, there is a track called Come Back Home, but it is not what you'll hear in the music video because there are two versions of Come Back Home. There is an album version or a sing- and a, uh, an acoustic version. Which they call a Come Back Home Unplugged. And the, uh, the music video takes both of these versions and cuts between them. Both versions are inter- stitched into each other to make a, a, a minute longer track, which um, goes even more places. And you can guess by the idea of stitching together a, a massive pop single and an unplugged version that, yeah, no, you get some, th- this track is a land of contrasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and the other really interesting thing about this music video is that contrary to basically every other K-pop music video out there, even the ones that are like really high concept, CGI heavy, cyberpunk to the gills, um, it has no, it doesn't feature the performance of the song. Um, it yep. doesn't show off the choreography. It barely shows shots of them singing. Um, and it's very much... A focus on the, the the plot and the narrative of the music video over the performance of it or the 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 otherwise like eye catching choreography and so on, which is really really different. It's a really unexpected thing. Basically, every single other uh, K-pop music video you'll see out there, with very few exceptions, have like a couple of distinct. I call them modes. There tend to be a couple of. There will always be a a uh, a like if the A roll is the performance footage, right? That they're performing this like really slick choreography for the song in some kind of an environment, and there might be multiple. They might have multiple costumes. There might be multiple sets, but you know, ultimately, it's just a straight up and down performance. There's almost always a kind of a, a, a we'll call it B roll. It's not really. It's like the concept track, like where there'll be like little skits or short uh, close-ups, etc., of the different performers uh, that kind of emphasize the concept of the song. Or if there is sort of a narrative progression, some scenes to kind of reinforce that or further the plot line. And then lastly, there is what I call the um, Tumblr GIF uh, <laughs> source reel. Yeah. The- the sizzle reels, yeah. Yeah, the sizzle reels. They're like, um, you know, close-ups of the performers in a variety of outfits um, that all almost always, again, fit with the concept and are kind of 
again, expressing something of the emotion behind it or, or the appeal or the allure of, let's face it, the performer and also the, the song. But yeah, like I think the the modes or registers is like the, the way I think it most, it's you express it the best. They're like, there's got to be a number of different ways in which the music video is communicating a number of different contexts that it sets up for itself. And first and foremost, the performance is usually the, the, the one you start with. Yeah. And this one just almost entirely dispenses with that mode. Like we get some singing, very little. Almost all of it happens in the narrative context, in the narrative yeah. mode of, of um, yeah, music video making. Yeah, it, it happens. You, you get the feeling that it, it is supposed to happen diegetically, that it's happening at least within the world of the music video. They're in different settings, but there's no... We joked a lot about the boys in the box phenomenon, <laughs> where you just shove your performers in a well-lit room and get them to dance, uh, and, and you just cut between that and the other different reels I was talking about. This doesn't happen here. There's no such thing. So the the I will say the, the plot of this music video is quite simple. If, if you're just trying to track what happens. So the concept is Dara, who is one of the singers, and her uh, boyfriend are in a rocky relationship because he keeps going into this virtual paradise, uh, which is implied to be something, you know, akin to the Matrix. Uh, and he would rather kind of indulge in escapism rather than spend time with her. And over the course of the music video, she uh, comes to the realization that the only way for... Uh, well, initially that she thinks the only way she can spend time with her loved one is to get him to unplug. And when that doesn't work, she seems to decide that in order to spare others this fate of being disconnected from a loved one, they, as in to anyone, as in all four of them, will have to just simply smash the Matrix. And at the end of the music video, you get a triumphant shot that kind of bookends the very first shot of the virtual paradise being shot down. Within that, though... It goes places. A lot's going on. Uh, so, oh, um... So, like, the mechanics of it. This was a hugely expensive music video. It had a, a, it cost almost half a million US dollars. Uh, and this was largely because of the really extensive CGI uh, that they used to, yes. both for the whole virtual reality sequence, but also for the, the choruses, the, the vaporwave CGI choruses. So yeah, I, I say vaporwave, not in the actual like musical genre sense of it, no. but in the aesthetic sensibility of like dislocated, untethered, unphysical, 3D rendered objects flying through and deconstructing themselves in an like a confusing space. Um, mouths and pouring forth transitions through. It's like got as much a, a sensibility of like um, mid to uh, 2010s Tumblr asset sharing as it does like 60s psychedelica. Yeah, that's that's a way to put it. And it's a hell of a combination. Yeah. So, like, maybe we should just do a couple of just, like, scene-setting things. Like, what are the scenes it sets up? It sets up a CG city. Right. And a flat within that where um, uh, Dara and her partner live. We have... Right. And and that, that city is very deliberately shot to be dull, monotone, all the colors washed out. 
It's, um, well, they didn't literally go with beige. It's more like a, a kind of a cool gray, but it's beige. I mean, mm-hmm. everything about it is beige. Yep. Um, and it's clearly a miserable place to be. That's what gets me, right? Like, yeah. the buildings are worn down. The interiors are worn down. The people look worn down. Yep. Um, it's like, as you would expect in a music video, you don't attempt to make your performers look unflattering, but this is their best attempt to make a K-pop idol look unflattering in a in the middle of a music video. Yeah. Then there is the inexplicable drug den. Yeah. Um, the members of 21 are busy hanging out in a... Uh, Room full of tubes. A cool, like, hydroponics slash chemistry lab yeah it's it's got a a, like a surprising amount of like potted house plants it's very red the color palette is 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 actually genuinely helpful for distinguishing between settings yeah because it's very red it's almost kind of misty and hazy Mm -hmm. which at least you know gives you some color um and then and then in the middle of all of this about a minute ten in, in stride CL with like a leopard print uh, jacket, of a baseball bat, and she takes a big old swing at a junction box, and then welcome to the virtual paradise. and in we go and it's yeah. uh it's it's a ride and this is cg central this is a cavalcade of bizarre geometric shapes and effects and unphysical objects and um it's a gold mine if you like me are trying to come up with a five second clip to advertise this uh podcast episode <laughs> that's what that is yeah oh it's so good um and then one minute 40 or so in we get one of the most... This is one of the first moment in this music video you screamed at. Yeah, this was my first... Was it the first or the second? No, I think my first what the fuck is when it went full uh, synth on me. Yeah. Because uh-huh. that chorus, like that, the drop for that chorus, and we'll get into this in a bit, is... It's, it's a strange drop, but it's... It's a very strange drop. But then we get something even stranger. Yeah. And it's called... Oh, remember when we told you there was an acoustic version? And that it was mixed into this? Hello. It's just a guitar and some very kind of lush strings strings yeah yeah so we walked straight out of cg drop weirdness and psychedelica into cl walking through the drug den with soft acoustic guitar gently like affectionately touching her bandmates and the body language communicates a sort of like solemn commitment to whatever they're doing and like a sense of emotional conflict Mm -hmm. that is entirely supported by this like soft in like gentle heartfelt string intimate right it's it's like a really intimate verse yeah yeah, yeah beautifully intimate and then um 
we switch out of the drug den to um what can only be described as remember the song's also got reggae in it yeah uh uh-huh we go back into the verses back into um drab city that the girls are coming to fuck up Mm -hmm. everyone gets ready to jack into the matrix or whatever yeah and then we have a few we we know what the world of like the drug den and the the bad the bad flat and the bad city look like Mm-hmm. And then we get to um, chorus pre-chorus number two, yes, where um, we find the decadent white people at a feast that the twenty-one members are coming to kill them at in virtual reality. Well, uh, actually, can I can I rewind a little bit because this is like the emotional climax, the like the the moment when you oh, go shit. into the second pre-chorus <laughs> is the emotional climax of this music video, right? It's uh, I know what time's done. This it is. About two minutes fifty, two two forty, two fifty, and it's basically Dara looking at her uh, uh, partner plugged into virtual reality and going, "Okay, there's no going back from this." And she unplugs him, and then it cuts to a genuinely, really like heavy, like one half a second shot of his body, head out of frame, just juddering, and then going limp. lying still. And you're like, "Oh, oh my god, did she just kill him?" And then, boom, right into that pre-chorus. <laughs> you don't linger. He is this, um, was it, Isakai, like, uh, unplug them, like, makes them brain dead or some something like that. We, we don't know. We don't know, but it, it feels like it's in that genre of, um, yeah. of, like, visual imagery. We'll come back to that. Right, and again, it, it transitions into this, like, kind of almost, like, grotesquely decadent feast. And I think they knew what what how people will receive it when they did that like overhead shot of just straight up an octopus yeah which mm-hmm. again still one of my favorite shots it's just an octopus <laughs> hanging out there yeah. and as as the members of 2 come to liberate everybody from the virtual paradise slash prison by symbolically murdering all of them with red spray paint and flipping tables. Yeah, we get the very mild-mannered Molotov cocktails that um, CL wheels in on a trolley and then um, yeah. sets on fire in the way that only a lighting director could manage. Absolutely. But it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, we get the spray paint of them. It's, that's the visual metaphor for killing people in the virtual reality. Yeah. Um, and then as we slide on, we get chorus again where we slide back into psychedelic, cyberpunky weirdness. Tronline skulls, flowers, chrome-plated skulls, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's all there. Uh, geometric generative pattern stuff. Yep. And then we get... It's generally oh. hypnotic. Like, that's mm. what that is. Uh, and then we go into the triumphant, you know, final section. Leading the... um. The, the, the sobered up, leading the revolutionary hordes out of that stupor and onto the streets. Yeah, through an airport train, uh, through an airport tunnel or something. Yeah. Um, flare lit, bright lights. Like pastels. Holding the baseball bats across their back. Yeah. And then kind of, the camera then has this dramatic zoom out and you... You see these like virtual tiles fly up, and then you zoom out even further, and you you get that bookend, right? Like it's this, it's that same first shot we saw of the city in disrepair, but this time the virtual paradise billboard is 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 fracturing. It's going away. 
it's disintegrating. And I think it's and I think it's the implication is it's supposed to be dawn, but the coloring is basically the same because I'm pretty sure they just reused that CGI backdrop because it was expensive. Yeah, the the color grading doesn't do much to explain what the hell is going on, but apparently there's something going on. I'm not sure what it is. Mm-hmm. Like so, uh, yeah. We we've said like, and it's it's a fascinating video. Um, I watched it. I've watched it at this point maybe two dozen times to get it just to be able to break down those shots and scenes because. It, it all happens really fast. There's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And it probably wasn't helped by the fact that it turns out there were two videos. Yeah. Much like how there's two versions of the song, right? So yeah, some interviews floating around with the director of the music video who says that originally the plan was to produce a music video for both the acoustic and album version. But that because of issues with like producer decisions and issues with how coherent it was coming out, they decided to intercut them together. So um, it's completely ambiguous which um, storyline would have been part of which music video. Like, maybe the acoustic part of the song was meant to be attached to the video for the acoustic part of the video. But who knows? Maybe that's just entirely not true. Yeah. Um, yeah. We simply cannot say because this is the product we've ended up with, which is chaotic and all over the place. And it lies between the tonalities so quickly and easily and with so much um, ellipsis going on in the visual language that you just don't know at some point. You can't, you don't notice the cuts because half the damn song is cuts. Yeah. Uh, this like. is, this is a mas- <laughs> this is a masterpiece of storytelling through editing because like, this is literally all you can do when you have some performers and a lot of CG. It's a lot of CG. Um, and then it also, it's also like, this is still a music video. Like there's still no explicit storytelling going on with language. Mm-hmm. So, um, so beyond being able to put virtual paradise and some symbols about, ah, it looks like escapism. And like all, all the storytelling that's happening is like implicit visual signaling that sometimes you just, you can't make explicit. And we're just stuck yeah. with this like confusing combination of, of ideas that get thrown at you on the screen. I, I think one of the more like telling anecdotes I have for this is a, so as I was saying, I was trying to make these little, I make these little clips to kind of advertise the, uh, the pod episode for Twitter, and I was trying to clip, you know, when we when we got around to doing Come Back Home, I went, oh, you know, they're all wielding baseball bats. Surely one of them swings it, right? It turns out, aside from that moment, a minute in, when CL, like, swings it into a junction box, which, it's not a great effect, right? It's not cut in such a way to, like, really emphasize the impact. It just, like, sparks a bit. No. Um, it, it's honestly a little underwhelming. None of them ever swing the bats, but they sure pose with them a lot. It's a very, very, very powerful visual signifier without actually being part of the, the action, the narrative. Yeah, and I think like that's a lot of what this video is, and it's a lot of what makes it up. It's piling on of these very laden and very lush and very busy uh, sets and these very busy shots and just piling them up together to kind of encourage you almost to kind of associate between them and create that meaning in your mind which is now that i think about it an extremely k-pop way of going about making a video mm-hmm. like if you were to, to take the idea behind k-pop like that that like kind of like juxtaposition and that joy in in just uh tone shifts and genre shifts and just put them all together this is 
kind of what you might get if what you were making wasn't a song but a video. It's exactly why this is the pinnacle of Hot Mess, because every single element from production process through the actual visual artifact to the song itself is all in this mode of like right. recombi- recombine everything possible with ha- massive super high production values in order to like express what is probably at its core a contradictory idea, but something that is grabbing and confusing and, and compelling in the strangest way. Yeah, because it's taking the song that, uh, you know, lyrically simple, but it is this simple but, you know, powerful idea of, you know, wanting a lost loved one to come home and blowing it up into this incredible, epic, uh, cyberpunk larger-than-life story about the real life versus the virtual life and leading the rebellion and changing your world. But because it's pop, it kind of... In, in interviews around this music video, because... Again, this music video was really highly praised for doing something different, for not making it kind of like a relatively low-key mundane love story, which it could have been, right? Uh, for not, you know, for, for doing something daring with the format of the K-pop music video. Uh, and in a lot of interviews, uh, the head of YG Entertainment, YG himself, he, he said, you know, oh, this is supposed to be about, like, disconnection and how the kids these days are looking at their phone too much. It's it's because you'd be on that phone. <laughs> it's because you'd be on that phone and that's why 21 they gotta smash it but not before you download the single <laughs> um, and that's kind of and that's kind of the point like it almost can't help itself but to make the real world drab and boring and making the like VR virtual paradise like really glamorous and fantastical and making the act of smashing it like purely aesthetic yeah <laughs> like like the the violence is 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 red spray paints and the most well mannered prettiest perfectly lit Molotov like this cool streetwear in this like misty tunnel right yeah they're images mm-hmm. they're images that you can be sold on yeah and and this yeah. is sort of where like you get on your critical theory high horse and say oh uh, yeah. What is, what's the point of producing this kind of narrative? It's because people generally seem to like empathize with it or attach to it in some way that like the real world is really fucking depressing sometimes. It's really rough and really tiring and really exhausting. And sometimes you wish you could escape. And sometimes what escape looks like is something that you would like to be sold as a commodity. And so... The ability to package resistance, hashtag resistance, the idea of resistance, the visual iconography and the aesthetic of resistance. The baseball bat sl- slung across your shoulders. Yeah, the baseball bat, the, the high-end hood by air, streetwear, the flares, the, the well-tempered Molotovs. Without demanding action, without demanding actually figuring out what is and isn't desirable or alluring about the situation is a way to sell people a thing they desire, the idea to change the world or resist in some abstract sense, without actually needing to do any systemic action. Which is, I mean, you can lament the fact that it happens, but it's like an entirely understandable reaction to the world. Is like when it feels awful and you need to um, figure out how to destroy it, could you not be like within this capitalist system that will try and do do this to absolutely everything that you care about, commodify it and sell it back to you in a way that you can consume in a comfortable and reasonable way that will make money for someone. 
Well, and above all, safe. Yes, it has to be safe. Uh, it's not threatening. Um, right. Because it's aesthetified. It- and by aesthetic, and, and like, we, okay, we've said aesthetified a lot. And, but what I mean by it is that, like, it's it's uh, it's depicted and kind of dressed up in such a way that it's completely divorced from reality. And you know, and everybody looking at it at a glance knows this is a fantasy. Uh, even if you can relate it back to your own life, right? like that's what I mean by that. Yeah, if you wanted to talk about resistance, you'd have to talk about uh, stuff that's a lot more material. You'd have to talk about who's funding what, um, what the actual physical condition this VR headset puts you in, and so on and so right. forth. But that's boring. You just don't talk about that. You talk about you talk about the the, the iconic images that point in that direction without actually forcing you to to take your brain with you. Uh, anyway, hello, welcome to the Critical Theory K-pop podcast that the secretly yeah. was all along. Oh, we, I mean, we, I don't think we ever present, we put ontology in our title, we never pretended oh, yeah, otherwise. That's <laughs> I, I mean, also, 21 are by no means, like, even, they're not the only people who do this, they're not even the worst at this by a long shot, right? Like, Label yeah. Meets uh, Big Bang, their Bang 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 video is basically this video, but with more performance, and Mad Max instead of Cyberpunk, I think is, yep. is how you described it. That's yeah, perfect. entirely that. It's like armored trucks and flamethrowers instead of um, drab city and sports cars and um, Cyberpunk psychedelia. Yeah, and of course, yeah. tying into next episode, Exo's <laughs> Monster, which you you pointed out because I only ever listened to the dance practice version of yeah, it. Yeah, Monster Wait. is a video that is palpably better in its performance iteration, but it does have an actual music video, and its actual music video does seem to like suggest like there is a police force who are in some way oppressive and who are being fought by the members of Exo in some nondescript way, and there is surveillance in some nondescript sense, but we don't know who's doing it. And it's all bad. It's all bad, apparently. It's definitely bad. And we're just supposed to accept this for the positioning of Exo looking good in, like, well, with, like, wound makeup and in camo and um, tech wear. And, like, that's the reason they're there. It's because the aesthetic and the the visual language they're, they're, they're mining is really powerful and really expressive and is something that a lot of people will tap into because, like, why wouldn't you tap into it? Because, of course, everyone wants to smash the system or, or everyone has the feeling of the order being oppressive. It's just that, like, you can do that in a way without actually, like, trying to figure out who's oppressive in the first place or what the nature of oppression actually is or what the technologies are doing. Right, I'm also not going to, like, knock anyone who likes it because, like, hell, I know I like it. Because, like, yeah. sometimes it allows you to indulge in that fantasy without bringing risk on yourself, and that's fun. Like, to to kind of flirt with that impulse is fun. And because capitalism is what it is, that it knows it and will sell that feeling to you. Yes. And, like, not to get, not to, like, venture into the the utterly fraught Adorno on jazz version of this. But, like, <laughs> no, we... No, Christ. We don't actually think that this is a bad thing to exist in the world, really. Yeah. Like, Stan, I, I, want, I want to just say for both of us, Stan ontology firmly falls on the side of it's okay to like things. Yes, absolutely. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, just like, this is how it fits into the sort of conceptual apparatus that like media will be pulling on you all the time. Mm-hmm. And like, I'm honestly much more concerned about the like... 
the well there are other bits of the media landscape that i'm much more concerned about than the sort of like aesthetification of protest in music videos but it's still really interesting that this is how people get you and that this is a music video with 80 plus million views and exos is a music video with 250 plus million views and that like this kind of visual language is absolutely as potent now and will continue to be that potent yeah can we talk about another bit of the visual language? Go for it. The the um the process of departing. Hmm. Yeah, we we talked a a little bit about this and that. Uh, firstly, this is a very confusing video. Um, had I not secretly just gone on Wikipedia to see its plot synopsis, I would have. Okay. Uh, let me rewind. Had I not looked around for interviews with YG, with the director, to figure out what was going on. I could barely understand. Like, I knew there was a through line. I just knew I wasn't getting it. But there was always this... It took me... It took you explaining it to me. Right. Yes, it did. It Months. All right. This this process took months. Um, but much like how there's this, like, general feeling and look of rebellion, there is in the first half, a general look and feeling of departure. Um, And I'm sure anyone who has ever watched a K-drama is familiar with the the standard sitting forlornly at a breakfast table uh, when your loved one has has left you, and with the significant haircut, um, which again makes no sense uh, in context. Why is he shaving? There is no built-up reason for him to have to shave his already pretty short hair <laughs> in order to put on these, like, VR antennae? Antenna? Goggles? We'll go with goggles. Any of those will work. Yeah, any and all of them. Earpiece. Uh, except that it is, again, much like the baseball bats, really potent, a really potent visual... Uh, metaphor for the idea that someone is leaving you permanently and Um, there's all sorts of like things you can gesture towards in culture that this might point towards so like one is military like when you go to the military or someone goes to the military they will generally shave their head and like part of this is a very common visual language within idol culture that male idols will like go from having their perfectly managed often bizarrely dyed hair to having no hair when they leave to go to the military and it takes a while for them to grow it back. And like, it's an absolute marker of departure, but also like- It's a relatable, it's a, it would be a relatable uh, image of departure because every uh, South Korean male with very few exceptions has to undergo that uh, compulsory military service. And so all of them get that haircut. Mm-hmm. And right. not not to try and undersell it, like some countries have mandatory military service, which will involve this kind of process. So other mm-hmm. countries, like when people are in the military, they're at risk of death. And like there is a, a serious level of emotional weight attached to the process of like the ritualized stuff that you need to go through to prepare yourself for like someone departing and possibly not coming back or coming back a very different person. Right. And the other angle, the flip side, uh, not flip side, the other part of that is the medical imagery. Um, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, which you get as much as you can get when you're when you're set as as we've previously established a shitty apartment. Um, but you know, they they do manage it because there is this very clinical looking bed and pose and this high tech gear, 
And as I say, that very, very jarring half-second shot of someone getting unplugged, shuddering, and then laying still. Yeah. Uh, and if that doesn't have some powerful medical undertones, I don't know what does. Hair loss or needing to shave hair is just, like, a, in a general sense associated with it. Like, whether, like, I have need skull surgery or I'm going through cancer treatment or whatever it might be. Like, it's, a, mm-hmm. it's an indication of, like... Of, for all the we Lasting can harp change, on, right. yeah. Forever we're harping on about hair specifically being a signifier. It's a signifier for other things that happen to be like really fundamental to like people and their continued self, and like that is just this is the the space the the music video is working in. And I think this is why yeah. it's so special, is because like without a reliance on this like explicit heavy lifting of like like textual narrative, it can just evoke the sense of all this stuff in rapid rapid chunks without ever having to make itself clear that you thought we wouldn't talk about the hair this time because it's sensible i mean yeah no the hair is the hair is good the hair is really good the looks it's are just good that, the looks are on point yeah I've, I've got to say i'm a i'm a hood by air fan but like mm-hmm. also am i a hood by air fan for when we start the revolution maybe not so much <laughs> should we talk about the song yeah because the, the fascinating thing is again it's like I don't know what's going on here, but the reason why I wanted to get back on uh, 21's Magical Ride is that it's actually really solid. That's just the bones of this song are solid. Honestly, for me, I go beyond solid. I really love this track. I think it's bizarre and fascinating and it's still confusing to me, but I really love it. Mm -hmm. I have to ask you, uh, uh, studio uh, album version, acoustic version... Music video version. Music video version, without question. (laughs) The juxtaposition is so powerful specifically because it, like, the album version cuts out the acoustic verse. If you get the music video version, you get the CL rap verse, which is a really good rap verse. It's understated Mm -hmm. and slow and calm and really, like, like purposeful. Um, Mm -hmm. I think CL's a really good performer and a really good rapper. Um, You also get one of the most abrupt and shocking like changes in a trajectory or structure of a song that I think I've ever heard, like pop music, any other art music, whatever it might be. Like it's strange and shocking in a way that like very few other things have. Uh, and comes in the middle, you know, you yeah. might expect it to come in the, in a bridge or at the end of a song. Like those are natural points to do a 180. No second verse. Yep. Yeah. Hello. Um, and it just means that, like, the music video version is, like, I mean, chaotic to some degree, but, like, puts you on a trajectory that you could not have expected. And the, the, the like, abruptness is, as a feature of it is something that, like, I am attached to now massively. And I don't think I like the song nearly as much if it um, didn't have that level of abruptness. Like, right. the, the, the extremity of each of its poles of the, like, lushness and the the beauty and I like gracefulness would be a way I'd describe the verses almost mm-hmm. um particularly the pre-choruses um the the come back home section um is like arch and full in in a way that almost sounds orchestrated and mm. that's because you could have an orchestrated version of it because they do have an orchestrated version of it. It's written in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, just to zone in on one melodic bit of that pre-chorus that I love, um, 
we we get the melodic line, which has this beautiful blue note. Do you want to explain what a blue note is? Yeah, no, I absolutely will. Let me find a time reference for, for your benefit. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So if the first pre-chorus kicks in at 57... So we get first phrase, which is just like, we get this grand entry of the synths and we have this warm enveloping mid-range, which is a new entry for the song. And we get this like longer, more extended lyrical section. So the first line is come back home once you come back home. The second lyrical line, um, you get the, the second note of it. You get somewhere between a major and a minor third. And the reason you do that, it's a hangover from jazz and R&B singing. Um, well, I say hangover. It's like a crucial part of that style of singing and that like pop singers have been using forever is to like put yourself in a sort of intermediate space where like the, the you're not forced harmonically into one space or the other. And you get the sort of like forlorn or longing sense in that sort of, um, in, in that sort of like shading between this like brightness and the darkness. Set up duty love. Don't ever call again. For I must have a And like if if these vocal takes were worse, you'd only hear them on the minor third, or you'd hear them go too sharp and they'd hit the major third, and it would sound a lot less subtle. But the reason it's so powerful here is because what the the, uh, the chord accompaniment is doing is ratcheting up this tension. We're um we're um we're getting this blue note, which is this sort of half major, half minor, while the chords are extremely major, such that we get um, two beats of the the root major, and then it shifts the 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 bass note up to the major third. It's incredibly tension building, mm-hmm. even while the singing performance is in this sort of intermediate space. And then what it does on the way down is this incredibly graceful way of returning, which is it hits the tonic again. And then it, instead of going back to the major third, it goes to the semitone below it. This sort of way of using like different um hitting different degrees of the scale on the way up and the way down is like a very common technique in classical music um it's like this song was clearly written with the formal precepts of like what a melodic minor song and how a harmonic progression within melodic minor as a scale should work and i will like and to be very clear about that that's a different hitting a different set of notes on the way up on the way down in order to ensure that your melodies have a natural shape to them And it does it so beautifully. But Michael. Yeah? It does it really beautifully. 
but it's not classical. It's reggae. Christ. Okay, so like, <laughs> I've been going on and on. I've been going on and on about how graceful and soft and gentle this pre-chorus section is. And the, the thing we're forgetting is just like the first minute the track is like, it's just electronic reggae. One, two, three. Why? How the hell is this track working when it's transitioning into this lush orchestrated section and these like beautiful like strident halftime beat is from like halftime reggae? Like I don't get it. Into into a as anticlimactic a chorus as you could imagine. So yeah. Um, so like there are if there are if I call the pre-chorus this like beautiful graceful lush lush section, it's bookended by a section of the verse. Reggae, chorus, psychedelic wooziness, anti-climax EDM drop, and then in the video version at least an additional verse section which is acoustic. Like, yeah, this song has two modes. It has this beautiful, expansive, graceful mode that it can only build up to through reggae, which should sound weird to you because it is. Yeah, and then it has chaotic, surreal, messy, twisted giddy almost psychedelic edm wow how it fits them together is just absurd still still a puzzle to me yeah i'm i'm throwing my arms around here like how the hell how and i flip-flop constantly and after months and months and months of listening to the song a lot as you know we always do to prepare for these things and i am still going back and forth over whether or not it it managed (laughs) So, like, I firmly put myself in the camp of it does because I keep listening to it because it's so compelling. Mm. Because I think the progression from, like, groovy and understated in the verse to lush and driving in the pre-chorus is so natural and so easy. Before the floor gives out from under you. Before the, the fucking planet gives away. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which, which, like, we, you know, we, again, went on a tour and, and just, like, looked at the sort of billboard top hundreds for, you know, March 2014, which is when this was released, for uh, America and for the UK. And it was interesting because, like, this was during an era of pop where pop was going sad, pop was getting dark, there were a lot of anticlimaxes. So, yeah, like, to contextualise, I think there is one obvious point in comparison for me for the combination of acoustic genres in EDM that would like be read as a surprise or shock and that is Avicii's um, Wake Me Up Which takes, it's like a a blueprint for both melodic EDM and pop EDM, as well as for bro country, which is the sort of like hanging off genre in American pop music, which like incorporates new modern high definition production techniques into country formats and sounds in order to like update and like modernize country as a genre. 
And that's like a, mm-hmm. a really obvious point of reference for that in terms of the way in which genre can be combined. But again, I go back to the definition of the hot mess. The point of the Avicii track is to integrate them. The point of them is you should, it should feel um, relatively seamless. Like, like a single whole, right? Yeah, it should feel like the single whole of this like combination EDM country space where there doesn't feel like a discontinuity going between hyper-compressed, overproduced guitars and hyper-compressed, overproduced source synths. And we also mentioned that, like, uh, uh, at the around about the same time, you had stuff like Katy Perry's Dark Horse, which kind of, sort of borrows that kind of like anticlimactic drop, kind of sort of borrows that reggae kind of uh, rhythm, and, and not much else, to be clear. Yeah. So Katy Perry is like it's. I wouldn't call it a reggae rhythm at all. It's. A, I think it's no. a very straight up, um, like hip hop beat. Um, so much so that they got sued. Um, if like I can say, you can chuck in the video and uh, the podcast description, Adam Neely's breakdown of the lawsuit about Katy Perry's Dark Horse versus a Christian rapper called Flame who was um, suing because the riff from Dark Horse was apparently so similar to his track. Very spurious case, but like the fact that Katy Perry was getting sued by random Christian rappers for how bog standard her track was should give you a sense mm-hmm. of it's not doing anything inventive. It's just decided that the sound world it wants to be in is understated, minimal, bass heavy, and not overbearing. I think a, another point of comparison I put up is um, the major laser DJ Snake track, um, Lean On. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another huge smash hit. Instead of taking reggae rhythms, it's taking reggaeton rhythms. Like, I know that they sound like similar, but they are not. Um, if I were to give like a one sentence explanation for for each of them, reggae being very slow halftime with uh, halftime meaning that you get double the number of weak beats before you hit each stress, which you might hear as a snare drum or something like that. The promised land, going to the promised land. Yes, the promised land, oh gosh now. Whereas reggaeton is standard time, it's, um, you will feel it like you would any other pop music, uh, with four equally, relatively equally stressed beats with a reggaeton clave to it, sort of like distinctive rhythm to it, which is dum cha 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 Mi música no discrimina a nadie, así que vamos a romper toda mi gente se mueve. And you'll note that from pretty much all of the like most notable Spanish language or um, uh, like Latino pop music that has crossed over in the States. Major Lazer being a big way that that's happened, but like, uh, Daddy Yankee Luis Fonsi's Despacito is a huge part of that. Um, I was waiting for you to say Despacito, but okay. There's um, 
J Balvin um, as one of the like biggest new stars of Spanish language pop music, where like that rhythm, that clave is like the the backbone um, is built first of all by having that rhythm at the base of it. Um, so where were we going with this? We were going from the uh, the the, the contextualising what this this thing is, and it's not reggaeton, but it is reggae. Interesting. Um, it's a bit like the sorts of integrations of acoustic and EDM, but it's not in that it's a juxtaposition very specifically rather mm-hmm. than a, like a quite cynical integration. And I'm happy calling wake me up cynical. And this is like, this has become the trademark thing that YG do. And it's all because of one man. We got to talk about Teddy Park. So Teddy Park is an artist um, and basically the in-house like signature producer for YG entertainment. Teddy Park started out in a group called... I don't know if you actually pronounce it like this, but we've been calling it One Time. Yeah, no, it is because I've been yeah. listening to okay. their tracks. Oh, good. Uh, the, the number one T-Y-M, all yeah. caps. So One Time... Well, the reason I know it's pronounced One Time is because I listened to one of their tracks, which is called One Time. It's a self-titled track because they are from the era, from the late to late 90s to mid-2000s era of K-pop, where you had to have a track where you bigged yourself up using your own name. This is this is back when YG Entertainment was not one of the big three. It was more of a like an underground hip hop label, and like all of their videos will attest to this. Like you you watch one of them, they've got a title card. It says how long they'll be. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's oh, it's lovely. It's it's a vibe. It's an extreme vibe. So Teddy Park starts out as one of the rappers in this like hip hoppy group that takes a lot of inspiration, particularly in its rhythms, from reggae. Clearly, Teddy Park had listened to a lot of reggae, and slowly, as he becomes more of a producer and less of a performer, Mm -hmm. he starts incorporating this into all of the the work he's doing with many artists on YG. And and alongside that, we got to shout out Stony Skunk. Stony fucking Skunk. What a name! Stony Skunk, Korea's first (laughs) reggae duo. Under YG, um, we will link one of their videos. But we're not because mm, we can't not. Yeah, I don't like. That's a just to be clear. They're not good. Yeah, just to be. This is not an endorsement. No, just to be clear, they are like at all. all the worst elements of appropriation, the the risk of appropriation and misunderstanding of culture, are fully there. I, Some of their their stuff is crossed over back in Jamaica. Fair enough. We're not going to talk about the intricacies of stone, Stony Skunk. That's not what we're here for. But I'm glad that people who listen to this podcast will know they exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and I mentioned this because, one, again, they were a duo that disbanded when one of them, uh, after one of them served in the military for his mandatory... Uh, mandatory military service. His compulsory military service. Yeah. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, but when he came back, one of them... Skunk, Skunk, uh, went on to have a songwriting slash producing career at YG alongside Teddy at about the same time that 2NE1 is debuting as uh, under two aliases, Kush and E. Nock. And would you know, they do share songwriting and production credits on 2NE1's uh, debut album, which is why there's a reggae mix of one of their songs there.
yeah. Um, and it means that given both the presence of like actual reggae artists and Teddy Park's longstanding fascination with both, I'm going to say both incorporating acoustic work into um, hip hop and electronic hip hop production, but also specifically reggae into hip hop production, mm-hmm. that you build up the sound world that YG ends up in. And when I say um, Teddy Park really is YG's signature producer, he pretty much produced the whole of this album. Um, If you look through his production credits, he gets pretty much the entirety of Blackpink's discography as well. Mm -hmm. A not insignificant portion of Big Bang is his. Yeah, Um, Not the entirety, slightly less so, but a very large proportion, which just means that you, um, you end up with, that combination, that like trick of um, combining acoustic and hip hop instrumentation and and like tropes, as well as the like injection of reggae rhythm, particularly in the older older stuff, it just becomes a signature sound. Um, I think it's much harder to figure out a signature sound for. Um, I think next episode, which we will be talking about in two weeks' time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to start to figure out what a signature sound for K-pop now writ large is. One of the mm-hmm. potential versions of that. But it's a much more nebulous thing than Teddy Park has single-handedly set a template for what YG and therefore a very large chunk of Korean hip-hop inflected pop music, and including some of the biggest pop music in both like Korea and the world, what it sounds like it's straight up down to him yeah which is cool and weird but also like wow it's a it's a thing that the thing he managed to pick out was hip-hop plus acoustic and reggae teddy park the guy who like single-handedly made the sound of korean pop hip-hop yeah yeah who's still active now right indeed of course and like to be very clear, like his hand is all over Blackpink stuff and just flicking through a couple of Blackpink tracks. Whenever you hear Blackpink lean on acoustic elements, particularly when they're going, switching back and forth between acoustic and dancey or acoustic and hip hop elements, that's Teddy Park's signature stuff. That's how he works. So yeah, this is this is the world of come back home. There is one more thing, and this is I couldn't really think of a good a, a place to put it. But remember when we were saying that like behind all this like bombast and extravagance of this half a million dollar CGI heavy uh, electronic song is this very emotional, heartfelt track that it turns out so. Uh, a month after the Seoul Ferry incident, uh, 21, alongside a lot of other uh, Korean artists, took part in sort of a commemorative concert. 
And they performed the acoustic version of Come Back Home for that. And it's genuinely really moving. Um, and it's beautifully done. Uh, and it's certainly one of my favorite versions of the song. One, two, three, no, not dirt on it, your mind. Oh, think I guess I'm sorry, got but uh i'm not i don't really want to talk about it just because i am keenly aware of the fact that i cannot do it justice suffice to say that it was a tragedy with an incredibly like wide-ranging implications for Korean society and politics uh, the aftermath of which is like still I think safe to say keenly felt years afterward and it sort of sets up we picked these songs for a reason because I think they tell us some of the big trajectories that like are at play in modern k-pop and in a few weeks time we're going to talk about um Whistle by Blackpink, which is a sort mm-hmm. of elaboration of how the sound of 21 has evolved and become the backbone for modern hip-hop production in K-pop. In a, in a few weeks' time, we're going to talk about One of These Nights by Red Velvet, which obviously has interesting things to talk about on itself, but also has a very particular relationship to the Seoul Ferry disaster and is going to be a lens in on how we can explore K-pop's relationship to um, Korean culture and political culture more widely. Mm -hmm. And next week, which is where we tap back up to um, both what I think we think is one of the pinnacles of the hot mess mode of songwriting and production, as well as one of the titans of protest but aesthetified, EXO's Monster. That's going to be good. So that's what you got to look forward to. See, the, the, beauty, the beauty of a hot, hot mess is that it, it also links to everything. Yeah, no, I mean, this, it sits at a, it's a cornerstone between all of the other things we think are important and cool about um, what K-pop is doing and how it's become what it is. So yeah, that's what we got to look forward to in the next few episodes. Yeah, so we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Catch us on Twitter together at Stan Ontology. You can find me at Regression with three S's. Uh, you'll find me at Claudia W-Y-L-O, uh, C-L-A-U-D-I-A-W-Y-L-O. And we'll be back in two weeks' time with yet more Stan Ontology. Thank you for listening. Cue outro music.